0: Uh, Pramath is an institution builder, a teacher, um, a management consultant, a PhD in robotics, and one of my beloved mentors who's written uh, the foreword of my book and just helped me for decades and thousands of others. Uh, Today we are here to discuss his latest publication Uh, but before I begin I want to ask him a bit about uh, how he describes himself and why did he title the
1: book the way he did. Oh wow, you're starting with very tough questions, Utkarsh. (laughs) Let's get straight to it. Well, I do think of myself As somebody who is very passionate about creating high quality institutions of learning, uh, as somebody who likes to not just create high quality, but innovative institutions for learning, create opportunities for young people to pursue things in India that they would not otherwise have been able to pursue. Uh, so that's what I do. But in, things, in terms of myself, I'm still the boy from the small town. Uh, I grew up in Patna and I think that I'm very close to my roots. Uh, I want to stay close to my roots whether it's my family whether it's my values uh, whether it is my interests uh, as you know in hindi literature which is a legacy i received from my father and grandfather and before that my great grandfather uh, so i do think i have i'm a, i'm somebody who has mul- these multiple identities i think <laughs> and uh, uh, and 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 different people see different identities of mine and i'm i i think i i'm comfortable with that and that's how i'd like to dis- describe or that's how i see myself i think it also gives me uh, the chance to keep flitting between these identities so that i don't take any of them too seriously <laughs> uh your, the second part of your question was uh, about the book, right? Did you say? Why did you title it?
0: Yeah, why did you title it? Well.
1: Interestingly, the, the initial title of the book was Preparing to Pivot. And uh, I wasn't totally happy with that because I felt that well, firstly, I was searching for titles, and we came up with multiple titles. Uh, I was working with this editor and, and and myself, so we were sparring, and we finally settled on preparing to pivot. But it stayed that way for a long time. And in fact, when we sent the manuscript to Penguin, uh, that was the working title. Hmm. And we kept playing around with other titles, and we couldn't quite settle on a title. But then I wasn't happy with this preparing for pivot title. I just felt that if I meant to get the attention of young people, particularly students, then the title wouldn't mean much to them. I would have to explain the title. I would have to explain to a student. uh, Varya was saying that she gave this book to her brother. She would have to first explain to her brother why this title was important for him or her. Hmm. I was really pushing myself very hard to say so. I have to get away, but I couldn't crack it. And then one day, I don't know, it just struck me that it should be about this central question that people ask me uh, what should I study? And that's why I wrote the book. The book starts with that question. And if I had to give a one word answer to that question, what would it be? If I had to do one word, what would it be? And then popped out learn. And I said, Yeah, actually, that's what I'm saying in this book, right? It's it's that of course you have this is about education. I'm not saying don't educate yourself. I'm not saying you shouldn't do all the things that people have done traditionally through centuries. I'm not being that radical. Uh, And you know there are points of view that you don't need a formal education any longer. I'm not saying that. But indeed what I'm saying is that use that education differently or offer that, consume that education differently from what it is done today Uh, and that it was always meant for learning but we somehow forgotten to it seems take so. yeah and so anyway that's how the that, then i said if you just say learn people are not going to get it either and that from that this thing to contrast it with study don't study came up and and then i knew i had something and uh, i've seen this with naming you know if you get to something and you immediately test it with a few people and everybody says oh wow that makes sense uh, and of course, there were once you come up with the title, then you say, okay, you start finding all the problem because you know, should people take it as I'm suggesting that they shouldn't study? Uh, <laughs> and then there was this question of whether there should be a comma or not. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then of course, the 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 my my initial title was Learn Not Study. And then somebody told me that's not correct English. So we went through a multiple of iterations, but nobody was saying this is not a good title. And so I knew I had the title. That's how it was born. Sorry for the long answer, but I tend to talk to much. So very team. important. Cut me off. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I will. But ours is a
0: long form podcast. We want uh, our listeners and viewers to really understand the thought process of leaders we host. So please. And I want to uh, make two short points. One is that the extent of how much you've influenced me is that our books came out around the same time. They're roughly of the same topic, and there is there's one sentence in your book which says a Walt Whitman's quote: "We are multitudes." And interestingly, there is a full chapter in my book on that quote, which talks about oh, wow. multiple <laughs> identities uh, and so you forth. With that. Do your See, first? I can imagine. <laughs> it's a it's a fascinating thing, but what's interesting about your career is that you've actually donned these multiple identities and made careers out of many of them. And it doesn't seem to be that you're following a formula or a script, but rather you've been really following your passion, which brings me to my next question. Uh, Passion is a much talked about word. um, And you you mentioned you can do anything in the first part. So tell us, Can you do, can a person do anything? And what does passion really mean in the 21st century?
1: I do believe a person can do anything, but that statement needs to be nuanced. When I say a person can do anything, I mean relative to what you thought you were capable of, relative to what you have done so far, what you can do is unimaginable. And in that sense, you can do anything. The other nuance is you can't do everything. That would make the statement cute and trivial. Uh, I won't be a race car driver. I, I won't play cricket for India. I mean, that may even seem too far out and uh, actually a trivial example but i don't think i'll be a great chef i love to cook but i don't think i'll be a world famous chef or even a locally famous chef uh, so i think there are things that you can't do and there's let's let's accept that but relative to what you th- Think you are capable of relative to what others say your potential is, relative to what you've done so far and what you think that can be extrapolated to, you can actually surprise yourself. You can shock yourself at what you can do. And that's true for all of us. I don't think you have to be specially abled or intelligent or, you know, to, to be able to do that. So I, I do believe uh, that it's it's possible to far exceed your own and others' expectations of what you can do. And you are a good example. I, I still remember the first time I met you uh, and, and your YIF interview. And look how far you have come. I mean, I don't think you could have imagined that you would be sitting where you are sitting today and everything that you have done in such a short time span. So I do think that that, is an accurate statement if you nuance it in the way that i i just tried to talking about passion and this book that's the central theme is its passion and purpose uh, i think the two kind of go together in my mind it's it's Passion more related to career. I think we may be passionate about many things. I think I'm passionate about Hindustani classical music, but I don't think I'm talking about that interest or hobby passion. I'm talking about passion for what you really want to do or make meaning for what you do. And so passion, purpose, meaning is sort of intertwined in the way I've used passion in this case. I do think that... You need to have a combination of passion, purpose, and meaning in in being able to achieve what you want to do. We were just talking about ambition. and we are all ambitious. We all want to be successful. And I think you'll be most successful if you can match uh, what you're doing with your passion, uh, purpose, and meaning. And you know people have talked about that. This is not rocket science. Uh, Uh, this whole concept of Ikigai and and, and several other people have written about it. I think the way I would like to think about it and I think that's the perhaps the more practical approach that I have tried to share uh, in Mm. the book is that passion is not fixed. Mm. Your purpose is not fixed. There isn't one passion for utkash, and passion doesn't grow on trees. That you have to go find it and pluck it, and once you got it, then you got it. Uh, you actually have to try and experiment and discover your passion. Number one. you can find work that matches your passion. I think I say this in the book somewhere. But most importantly, your passion can change over time. It's not constant. It's not one. And if you approach it with that mindset, then there will be periods of time in your life which you will definitely not be doing things that you are passionate about. In fact, you'll be very Disappointed with what you're doing, because it's completely adverse to anything that you are in fact, you are you abhor what you do. Hmm. Uh, so, know that you'll discover passions as you go through your life, and there isn't a single passion for you. Today, I'm passionate about higher education. Tomorrow, I may be passionate about just traveling. After that, I might just be passionate about I may be, I may have always had a passion for Hindi literature, but then I might focus on working only in that area and say that, hey, my passion matches my work and So I think that's how I think about this notion of passion and how it matches up with what I do, what one does. And I think that's the part that I've tried to address in the book. Yeah.
0: And after that, the book beautifully grows into self-discovery. And I think uh, that's something that a lot of millennials and Gen Zs really struggle with. How do you discover your passion or your interest or your curiosity? And since you're really passionate about India, you quote two things that Indians are well-rounded and Indians change jobs a lot. Why do you think that is? And what does self-discovery mean in the Indian context? Do parents complicate that self-discovery?
1: I think parents and social norms uh, complicate the self-discovery because, because of the anxiety around outcomes around getting into a prestigious institution or getting a high paying job or just getting a job. Mm. We all want to fast track or know well in advance what the outcome will be. You want assurance. And to, because the uncertainty creates anxiety and fear. So you want to be assured early on of what your outcome will be. And to do that, you want to actually slot somebody in and not get into all this self discovery nonsense. Because if I knew today that I should study this and get this outcome and my son or daughter or I will be fine, you don't need self-discovery and then you are not in the mood to, because self-discovery means experimentation that comes with failure and if you fail, then how do you deal with that? So I think that is the hugely complicating factor. Interestingly, I'm just coming from a open house with uh, bunch of students and their parents who gotten accepted into Ashoka University for the undergraduate program. And as you know, our program is a liberal arts program, and we have multiple majors. One of the key themes in that session was parents somewhat grilling me, mind you, that yeah, yeah, we get all of this. We get everything. That's why we are here. That's why our kid has applied. That's why we've applied. But will you be teaching enough computer science? Will you be teaching enough economics? You talk about all this foundation courses and extracurriculars and electives, but right? Will you be teaching enough sociology even? And... Will this be enough to get my son an investing job? Will this be enough to get my son a a computer science master's? So I could see for myself that this idea that, and and I I kept emphasizing that, listen, the great thing about the Ashoka education is that your children will have choice. They can choose. And by the way, some of their choices may not work. They are saying to you right now, and they think that they would really want to do biology, but you know what? When they go there, they might and they might not. That thought is really scary. So to me, self-discovery is really about saying, I don't know. I have to discover. And the only way you can discover is choosing between options. Knowing that your choices may not turn out to be perfectly successful and that therefore you may end up making a choice that you regret. But you know what? That I have the confidence that even if I made a bad choice, I'll be able to pivot. I can bring that word in or switch or go to something else and then something else to be able to find at least for the next phase of my career or life something that I'll be successful at. And that's what self-discovery is, is the confidence and the courage to take risks, to fail and still come out Ahead, to know that even the failures are actually teaching you something about what is helping you discover is is failure is also self discovery. In fact, it's probably the best the best form of self discovery. And I think that is what it means in the Indian context. But like I said, with everything I said earlier, it's very counterintuitive to my generation and indeed even younger generation to me, particularly the parents. In fact, one lady got into a lot of discussion about me because she said, listen, I'm a computer science major from the Thapar Institute. And help me understand why your computer science is better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's very different, right? What Ashoka Computer Science will You know, that that Ashoka computer science major has to first do foundation courses in critical thinking, English literature, great books, history, sociology, philosophy, psychology, economics. Now, how do I even compare that to a upper or for that matter, you know, the IIT Kanpur degree that I went through. But the implication is that somehow my son will not be ready for a career in computer science, but that's not true. We know that that's not true, that a computer scientist who does all of these, in fact, may be a better computer scientist. And if you just look at the history of computer science graduates from Ashoka, uh, they've gone to Microsoft and Google in computer science research jobs, and they've gone to... CMU and Penn and Cornell for PhDs. So I'm not trying to to belabor the point, but I do think that our mindsets are very much in minimizing uncertainty. And therefore, let's be certain that, let's cut out all the frills. We don't need that stuff. Let's stay with what, is required let's just do that let's do that really well and then get into a path that is a sure shot to success that mentality yeah. is very. Um,
0: yeah. one of them uh, the computer science major actually works at network capital so i can vouch for the quality of the skills that they build and i've noticed that you know i mean if i look at my own career i started in mechanical engineering then had a life-changing year at yif Ashoka university then did an mba And now I'm studying philosophy at Oxford, even though, (laughs) I mean, I'm an entrepreneur and this is something that I'm doing purely out of, you know, the pleasure of learning philosophy. But the seeds were uh, from Ashoka and some of the classes that I took. And the career that I've led does check boxes, but there isn't a script. The script is, you know, discovering as time progresses and your passions evolve. And that's something that I found really uh, fascinating in your book especially that one point about premature conformity. When I came to you, uh, we'd had many discussions about which college should I take after Ashoka. I had a few admits from uh, you know, policy schools and business schools and you really helped me uh, through the process what to pick. And uh, you got me to change my mind about this premature conformity. So tell us, tell our listeners about what that means and. How you've come to internalize that,
1: yeah, I think it connects to what I was saying earlier that because we want to minimize the uncertainty, and we need to we want to do that because we want to eliminate or minimize the anxiety associated with the uncertainty. you say, let's fix. And let's conform. Let's do take the path of seemingly less least resistance, because that gets me to an outcome. And my point is that, you know when particularly when you are 17 or 16, 16, 17, 18 years old, when you're making a call on what you should study. you're being forced to pick. Then when you pick, you get stuck because most institutions do not allow you to shift during the course of your studies. It's considered bad. Yeah, it's considered bad, changing your mind. And it's also, yeah, it's like you are wishy-washy. How can you not know? (laughs) Look at Utkarsh. He always knew what he wanted to do and he's doing so well, and look, he's got a great job, and you know, when he was seven years old, he knew what he wanted to do, and there will be people like that. So you start getting compared, and there's peer pressure, and again, we've talked about this. Now, therefore, what happens is that you lose out on understanding that there is so many other things you could do. You never get exposed to it. It's Tragic, actually. You take my example. I wanted to be at IIT, and why not? I wanted to be at a top institution at that time. I felt like I deserved to be at some of the Mm -hmm. top institutions in the country. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. All of us aspire to do that. I worked hard, I qualified and said, Yeah. uh, and I was good in math science, so I said, yeah, I could be an engineer. I like the idea of intense four-year study with physics, chemistry, maths, and that kind of work. I was very good in humanities and social sciences, but the teaching of that in my school was great. English literature, was English was great, but the other areas was actually very poor, and mm-hmm. Think back, I had no interest in those areas, even though I would do well in my marks. But now what happens is you qualify. You are good enough to get into IIT Kanpur, which in my days was seen as a very prestigious IIT. The best rankers would go to that. So why would you not go on to get into an institution that was most coveted by people but then because of your rank, you can only study certain subjects. In my case, it was really between metallurgical engineering and maybe that I could have done many other things like aeronautical and so on. And honestly, none of these were of that much interest. Now, I could have chosen to go to a lesser known institution to study a subject of my choice. And you could turn to me and say, Pramath, you're making this up. But go, you could have gone to any other institution. But why should I? I am good enough to get into this institution. I should have that choice. But I now have to conform. There's also pressure on me, Kiryat. How can you say no to IIT Kanpur? Mm -hmm. So that pressure of conformity is also there. So you end up going there, you choose metallurgical engineering and then you realize that for four years, all I'm going to study is a subject that I have no interest in. Forget, and there is no possibility of self discovery.
0: Yeah. And that is really tragic um, for, for the country and for the person.
1: Yes. So now, IIT Bombay, and to some extent, and, and I believe IIT Gani Nagar are introducing the system of saying you can switch. But in my days, only a few people got to switch. And that also was, you know, you have to take another exam and be super, super, super bright to get to crack it. So it was almost impossible to crack for the ordinary mortals. And believe it or not, people would actually... My roommate in first year was in mechanical engineering. He wanted to study electrical engineering. And to me, they were just adjacent disciplines. It was like, why do you bother? But in any case, he actually took the entrance exam again, got a better rank, and then re-admitted himself into IIT Kanpur, into the other department now. Imagine going through so much trouble to just shift from department X to department Y, which around the world and even at Ashoka today, you can just do it. You're good enough for Ashoka, you are good enough to switch. Of course, there are certain requirements. You can't go from studying one thing to the other without you know, say, having some math and, you know, other requirements. So there are requirements, but you have a pathway. You have a legitimate, doable, practical pathway to change. So this goes back, this is the conformity point, that you're prematurely, and premature because at 16, 17, 18 years old, you don't really know, you don't even know what good teaching in history is. You know Rudrangshu's teaching at Ashoka, in the first year at Ashoka, I remember we had, in the first year we had 128 undergrads. Zero undergrads applied for the history major. First semester of teaching, 25 out of the 128 or some number like that wanted to switch to history. Because they did one course under an inspiring faculty member. That's how premature your choice is. One one great teacher can completely switch your mind and say, "Oh wow, I want to do history," and maybe that's premature as well. But I'm, the point I'm making is that it's that's how unknown certain unknowns are. Yeah.
0: And uh, you're talking about history and, you know, Rudrangshu's classes made a huge impact on me. And once in a discussion with him and Ram Guha, who I recently met, and I told him that I loved what you write, but your career and what you said about your career made a huge impact on me because he did not actually study history. He became a historian out of curiosity after being, as he described, a failed civil servant, a failed cricketer and a failed whatnot. And it's a fascinating, I ended up writing a long piece about Ram Goha's career and how this accidental historian is changing, um, you know, a, the way we should think about history and about careers. And that makes your point really well about the art of making sense of the world by connecting the dots as you get more information. Yes. There is a lot of talk about liberal arts and generalism, deep generalism, specialists, you know, anti-specialists, what does balancing breadth and depth mean to you? In the book, you talk about a fascinating case study of a young gentleman who started a, at a Yale uh, law school, went into um, building his own firm. And uh, he talks about how sometimes people would read a few articles and consider themselves generalist, and that's not enough. And I found that fascinating. But as somebody who is like a PhD in, uh, in robotics and has gone through this uh, career transformation, how does career balancing, especially in the terms of breadth and depth work and who is a good
1: deep generalist? So firstly, the two are not trade-offs. Uh, and I think, I hope I made that point clearly in the book. I yep. refer a lot to Epstein's range uh, where he talks about this whole idea of being a generalist and generalists having been being more successful, which I completely agree with him. Where I've in, perhaps emphasized more on what he says is that you will have to also be a specialist at A particular role in your career. As your role keeps changing, you'll have to continue to be a generalist, but you'll have to be specialists in different areas. You'll almost have core generalist skills, but you will keep being a specialist. In a different specialization, every few years, every new change, every new pivot. And therefore, the big insight I have is that you need to learn how to be a good specialist or learn to become a specialist in an area that you don't know anything about. That's the core skill to have on top of being a good generalist. Now, to your point, what does it mean to be a good specialist? I don't know. I think that's that's, that that depends on the context. But what I do know is that, at least in your role, you should be able to significantly solve problems that are posed to you, and 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 solve those problems uh, (laughs) in a way that is not superficial. Because if then you can do damage. You can do damage to people's lives if you. Came up with an answer without really getting deep into a topic right so i do think that you do want to specialize but know that that specialization may not last that that specialization should not be limiting and it's okay to give up on that five years of study in robotics actually seven years of study in robotics and not think of it as a waste but to think of it as a meta super skill that you've developed to say, okay, what does getting into depth really mean? And now can I get into the same level of depth without spending seven years doing research? I probably can't, but can I get how close to that can I get mm. in the short time frame that I have
0: and so Epstein's work or in this is really, like, uh, special. They talks about Roger Federer and many other examples. Yeah.
1: Right. So if you think about the Federer example and the fact that he played so many sports, but then once he gets into tennis, he goes right deep into it, right? As deep as you possibly can. I think where I would take the Federer example forward, which applies to careers, is that you don't have just a tennis career. <laughs> you then end up having a golf career and a badminton career and a tt career maybe even a cricket career so can you replicate that mental toughness the physical toughness the agility on the on the court the speed and the uh, the, the 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 skill as as core to you that works in every sport, which is my whole point about sort of the core skills and the foundational skills. But then be able to go into a new field, into a new sport and quickly get enough into it that even if you didn't become a world ranker that you can actually start Sometimes being a club level, sometimes being a regional level, sometimes being a rational, national level, sometimes being a global level person. Clearly, the sports analogy seems impossible, uh, uh, humanly impossible, because we don't have too many examples. But in a career setting, that's entirely possible. Look, you look at what you have done, right, yourself, from being a mechanical engineering. Major to going and doing liberal arts, but then getting into management, doing a software role, but then getting much more into the social sector. Now, this whole network capital is a completely new. You're such a you've gone so deep into it, right? Now you know, therefore, now what it takes to get deep into this. Your work at Microsoft, too. You were deep into it when you were doing some of the stuff around digital transformation in you know in, in in the villages right you were deep into it so now tomorrow if i ask you to do i don't know cyber security for banking i know you'll be able to do it because you'll you know how to get deep into a subject quickly while retaining all your wonderful Communication skills, writing skills, relationship skills, personal impact and leadership skills, right? I think that's the way to think about the balance. It's yeah, I remember not a, even in the yeah, sorry.
0: Even in this in, in the smart village that we worked on, I drew upon a bunch of stuff that I learned in sociology classes at YIH. Because you don't go and overlay technology on a particular problem. You try and first understand the context is exactly the
1: point uh, that you make in this space. In fact, I made that point today in the class because I I said that, you know, if your son is going to go to work for Microsoft, he's going to need to understand sociology very well because tomorrow you'll be using that, that product in a community. And how do customers really react? Do customers even want your product? Is a sociological issue. But just being a computer science scientist, you'll probably just design the product. But if you really want to be a successful computer scientist and maybe become Satya Nadella one day, then you need to have a much more holistic understanding of the impact of your technology. And that's what Ashoka tries to do. Anyway, not to make this a pitch about Ashoka. <laughs>
0: um in fact, Satya Nadella, who I've worked a bit with, he loves Rilke. He's a great example of somebody who's not formally studied liberal arts, but uh, has a strong understanding and applies that to make corporate strategy and, and think about the world. Um, but let's go deeper into the point. Tell our listeners about lifeboy and how does that make sense when you, uh, uh, when you talk about it in the book, how the case study of Boy, for example, is a great marketing technique. But the person who implemented it, she's gone through so many pivots by learning to become a specialist in a different context.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, you're referring to Anita McKinsey. That's right. I think what I do remember more about the interview uh, is the Prince Arthur, uh, Prince Charles, uh, the, the work she did through that. Yeah which allowed her to understand rural markets better, a little bit like what you were describing about your own experience. Exactly. Yes. And then she was able to bring it back to Unilever.
0: Hmm.
1: So she, a lot of people wouldn't volunteer for an opportunity like that, even if they were chosen. Uh, for example, when I was asked to become Dean of ISB, everybody told me not to do it. And I think I talk about it in the book somewhere. I think I talked He's just about, about to come to that. Yeah. Okay, so I won't let that on yet, but I'll come back. So I think in Anita's case, being able to move out of Unilever, grabbing the opportunity to work in a very different field. Till then, her career had been very sort of uh, linear, straight jacketed suddenly opened her mind to the possibilities of, wow, you know, there is a whole other world out there. So that when she came back to Unilever, she started to implement some of that within the context of Unilever. Now, that connects back, I think, and that's the point you're making, to to my agility point or my ability to get deep into a subject because she picked up a subject, got deep into it, implemented back in in the Unilever Lifebuoy example. That then gives her the ability to go deep into a topic. So later on when she discovered that she wanted to do design or, you know, in fact, she she got into design later, but she first looked at just providing interesting artifacts and and home furnishings at the intersection of India and and Britain. Uh, She again was able to go deep into it. And in fact, went so deep into it that when she moved to Singapore, she first went further deep into it and became an interior designer. Right Now, I think her ability to go into deep into the, the Lifebuoy example is not getting the, that, that. Those skills are not directly applicable in the new situation, but the meta skill of going deep into something new, she's able to take from one example and apply it in a very different field, right? And of course, some things translate because she learned about marketing, branding, what customers really want and so on, and what's relevant in that context. Uh, So certain skills transferred, but certain skills didn't, but that didn't bother her because she knew how to get into a new area, having gotten into a new area before. Uh, And I think that is really what these examples show that, Picking up something that is so different from what you did before enables you to do that again and again. Which is what probably Roger Federer or or, or in sports, you can't do so easily, but you can do at work very easily. Yeah, Even yeah in
0: sports. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. Michael Jordan probably being an exception, but broadly it's uh, absolutely... Uh, You know, uh, Pramath, through Network Capital, my mission is to make a billion people make career transitions that really change their lives multiple times. And I think the career transitions that you've made, you've made many, but especially the ISB one. It was a difficult decision, one that some of your closest friends and family members probably cautioned you. How did you make that decision and uh, how did that change your mind about career transitions overall?
1: So I think uh, I have always found that when I get confused or when I don't know what decision or choice to make, I search for answers by talking to a lot of people. Now, there's no big insight there. All of us do that but i'm quite systematic about collecting inputs and saying these inputs are great but i'm actually not going to take utkarsh's advice i'm going to decide but i do want utkarsh's view because i can't my brain can't compute right now i am not able to think clearly but if i can get lots of advice I can structure that into a more holistic piece of thinking. because Utkash can't really think for me, he doesn't have the full context. But what he is saying helps me connect different pieces of my own thinking, others' advice, into a cogent kind of thought process. Till such a point where There's an aha moment and it all fits. And something appeals to me, to me, authentic to me. So it sounds very philosophical, but it's actually very practical what I do in these situations. Uh, And so in that situation also, I, like I've mentioned, I spoke to my partners in McKinsey, and they were like, sorry, you can't do this. In fact, they were harsh enough to say that I didn't have the courage to say no, and that's why I was doing it. Uh, Or that I was being pressured, or that I was actually trying to suck up. And that's why I was doing it. And that hurt when people said that, but I knew they were trying to just convince me. And then there, there was, of course, a lot of people who said it would hurt my career. And there were many other things about the logistics of it, being in Hyderabad, leaving the city. My wife was unhappy about, you know, disrupting our life. Doing, And I was very clear that I just wanted to do it for a year, that I, you know, I, I was always very clear that I I shouldn't be Dean, that a, a, a proper academic of the right qualification should be the Dean if you were trying to. So I at okay. most I the interim person. So why disrupt your life for one year? Let somebody else do it, kind of thing. But equally, none of this seemed to fit. Right? I I felt like there was nobody saying that. I, I could sense that this was a unique opportunity, but how come nobody was saying that? How come I was the only one? And was it really a unique opportunity? I was not able to crack the code on saying why was it such a unique opportunity. I, I was so deeply immersed in the situation and I enjoyed the work so much that I couldn't articulate why it was such a unique opportunity. I was too close to the situation. So again by talking, talking, talking to suddenly have Don Jacobs, and I don't think I mentioned it in the book, but Rajendra Pawar as well, and maybe I do mention it in the book.
0: Don Jacobs, you do. Rajeev Pawar, I didn't find. But,
1: but both Don and Raji Pawar was at NIIT, Who's the founder of NIIT, Were like, are you kidding me? Like, have you thought about? And they were not actually telling me to flatter me or to say, "Oh, you are great," or "You'll be, you'll become great." They said, "Who has the opportunity to build an institution from scratch and leave a legacy?" And have you thought about this? I mean, how can you not even think about that? And I had never thought about it as, because I was so involved in the project. I was like, it was a, it, it, it was part of what I was doing. So I never thought about it as a big project or a great project or something that could be a legacy. I mean, I did, but it, I was just too close to it. It was just the way they put it, that a light bulb went off. And then suddenly I realized that other people were not thinking about it that way at all, at all. They were not not evaluating that opportunity objectively. Everything else was colored by their biases and them wanting me to do something else, not damaging my career, not damaging the firm's future, not damaging, but what about the core opportunity, that? Was clearly a very exciting opportunity. But nobody had actually said that. And I said, wow, I, I'm so influenced by all of these people, and I'm only hearing this. And I'm so close to the opportunity that I'm not able to see objectively how great an opportunity. Then that's the key insight I was missing. And then the penny dropped. Then then it became a question of whether I have to decide or not. It didn't matter what other people think, right? Because ultimately you have to decide for yourself. And in that moment, I knew that, of course, this is such a big opportunity and I shouldn't say no. Uh, and that I had to take it. And then everything else melted away. <laughs> I am a little bit like this. I, 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 I The same thing happened when I chose to marry my wife. I was... Very confused. I was not supposed to get married on that trip to India from my PhD, and I similarly agonized about it a lot. Talked to a lot of people, and of course, I my my method is to tell people, "Go away! Don't ask me what I've decided. I'll tell you when I've decided." But don't put pressure on me. I need time to think. And during that time, I talk to a lot of people, and then somewhere I find that a it's almost like a jigsaw a piece falls in place, and bingo! It it connects with the way you think about the problem and solves it for you, and it it requires patience. But I love I love the that problem solving challenge that that I, I've always found that you give it enough time, uh, you get the answer.
0: Yeah, and as listeners listen to um, this particular segment of our uh, masterclass. I want them to also read the section about the book where you promised to talk about forming an opinion instead of having an opinion. So the way you formed your opinion about this career transition, I found particularly illuminating.
1: And I encourage those who read the book to pay specific uh, attention to that. You, you all, you've obviously paid more attention to the book than I remember, but yes, and that's exactly what happened in this case, right? Because... Uh, I think about important decisions like this, you need to hang loose a little bit. Too many people commit too early. Too many people have binding constraints too early. Uh, I find a lot around compensation these days. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can, this is what I need to make. And I'm like, hello, where's that coming from? I mean, you're going to make 5, 10, 50x of this over the next 15 years. Have you realized that? So why are you actually saying x has to be the case to make a decision today? Because of course, you need to order a certain amount of compensation, fair compensation and the best compensation. But why should that be a binding constraint? Because, you know, all of us are going to make multiple Xs of what we are earning today and that can't become the decision-making factor in deciding. So I think hanging loose a little bit and saying, yeah, of course, that's an important factor. Compensation always is. But if if it's a great opportunity, why would you hold yourself back because of that? Because you will make the money over time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And on the topic of uh, uh, money, you make the broader point that uh, money often takes care of itself in the longer run. And I see that, you know, I started my career in nonprofit, And when I came to YF, uh, I went to MBA straight after uh, to INSEAD. And before that, I was at Teach for India and my salary would be, you know, like uh, minimal. But again, I really enjoyed the job, learned a ton from it. And I apply the learnings even today. As I run programs and courses. so initial investment of time in learning, edu- you know, uh, the right skills, uh, going to the right masters before MBA or whatever, I think it pays off hundred x, thousand x even. I can't even imagine the difference between you know what I made at 22 and you know what I made at 32. It's like it's would have been Im- unimaginable for me to think about, and people should keep that in mind if you have the right foundation money often takes care of itself in the longer run. I was wondering, Pramath, if you had any thoughts about mentorship, because you make a very interesting point that often mentors find you. And do you want to tell us how uh, you've come to discover that or what does the phrase help me find a mentor really mean?
1: Yes, I think too often, people see the value of a mentor. You hear a story like what I just told you and I'm sure lots of people will say, okay, I don't have a mentor. Let me find a mentor. Let me call up Uttakarsh make Utkarsha a mentor. So the first thing is, you can't just ask anybody to be a mentor. In fact, you must value yourself a lot more and say, oh, my mentor better be a mentor who's earned the right to be my mentor. Let me not just give my mentoring privileges to anybody just because that person is famous or, you know, that's not what this is about. This is about somebody who's genuinely committed to your success, who cares more about your success in some ways than their own success. In fact, there's no competition is complete pride in what you and and a selflessness in the way the advice is given when i say that people that mentors find you uh, it's it's a little bit tongue in cheek it's a little bit uh, it, but it's practically true in the sense that it suddenly you discover through conversations with people you are associated with a working week that somebody says something to you and say aha this guy is actually mentoring me and you know what this is such selfless such clear thinking advice that i've just discovered somebody's a mentor and in that sense they have found me or i have found them doesn't matter so It's not like I have been looking for mentors, nor have I cultivated people because they are famous for them to become my mentors. It's people you you work with, you associate with, you are exposed to, you observe, and then suddenly you find that they give, they, they they are wise, they are impartial, they are objective, they are, unbiased. People ask them, you ask them for advice on anything, you find that their judgment is very, they're clear thinkers. Then you start, and then at some point you'll see that that, that that switches to conversations like what you should do or them saying, why don't you try that? And that's when you say, aha, here's a moment of truth. This relationship just transitioned. Into something more meaningful. Now, at that point, you have a choice whether you want to grab them or you want to, you know, slowly develop them and test it further. That's what usually happened with happens with me. So then, once you are sure, once you've seen that transition happen, then I'm pretty shameless about saying, "Listen, I need, I need your help. Right? I'm going to call you," or you just call them with a problem. Uh, now you, this doesn't happen with large numbers of people. If it is happening with large numbers of people, then you're not holding yourself. Uh, you you're you're not, you're not holding a high bar for people who have access to you. You know you have to be a little bit snooty about who should mentor you, or who do you now. And by snooty, I don't mean position or title or fame. I, I just mean the 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 quality and the authenticity of. Because your life is precious. Your your choices are precious. You don't want anybody giving you dispensing advice. This person should have earned the right to get there. They should know you well enough. They should have taken genuine interest. They should have been making time for you. So once that happens, then you probably have at any point in time one or two or maybe three people who you would consult. And over a period of time that person will change it's not going to be somebody who'll be there all your life and there will be different people for different aspects of your life right just as you have multiple identities you have different mentors advising those multiple identities because not everybody can uh, but that's how i think about it i don't know if it sounds too complicated but uh, again it's 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 a very in, to my mind, it's a very practical way of doing it, and you shouldn't be in a hurry because mentors can't be found in a hurry.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, that's so true. It's it's built over time, and you know, thank you so much for sharing this framework. Um, there is so much research about the growth mindset and careers, but in your book, you of course point give us the access to resources and quote them but tell us in your wide ranging experiences as a as a business person as an institution builder what are some traits that people with growth mindset have and how does that help them in their careers
1: so number 1 People with growth mindset know that they have to earn the right to grow. Hmm. The other end of that is entitlement. Hmm. Often run into people...
0: Tell us more. Yeah, tell us more about entitlement. So so you often run
1: into people who say, you know, they declare victory and say, I'm bored with what I do. Give me a promotion. Or I need I deserve a new salary, a higher salary. Or I need a different job. I, I've I've reached the plateau of my capabilities. So their growth mindset is very much about I need to grow and growth is about rank, positioning, uh, compensation, size of job and all of that. And that's what I'm calling being entitled. And honestly, for me, it's very putting off. Not that people shouldn't ask. I mean, they should ask. But I'm coming to when they should ask. I think the other end of that is to say, listen, have I really earned the right to ask? And it literally starts by saying, Praman, I was thinking that I would like to do something else. What do you think? Am I ready? I think we should at least, people with a growth mindset, at least start there. They want to make sure that they've actually truly plateaued out or have truly proven that they are deserving of being given new opportunities. And I think that's a very important point to understand that don't just demand stuff without having made sure that you've delivered or that you have the track record and that you have earned the right. I can tell very quickly as a manager when somebody has earned the right and I'm saying, yeah, let's talk about what more you should do. Versus people who are like, hello, you know, you, you have so much more to do before you can think about doing something else. Let's first have that conversation. But people have already decided that, no, no, I'm much better than everybody else. I'm delivered more than I was asked to. I need that promotion. I need, you need to create an opportunity for me. I and mean, in today's day and age, it's even more so because they're getting calls from headhunters or friends or saying, you know, we can give you more money and, you can get a better job and all of that. So I think that's the first piece about the growth mindset that I love it when people have the earn the right to grow conversation with me. Because that shows that they get it. I think the second thing about the growth mindset is that unless there's some clear reasons. People with a growth mindset rarely say no. You ask them to do something and they'll get it done. No fuss, no drama. They get it done. And sometimes it may be grunt stuff. Sometimes it may be stuff that you're saying, listen, this is not for me to do, you know, Pramod can ask his secretary to do it. But you know what, the reason they do it is not because they are sucking up to me. The reason they do it, because they know that even in that, there could be some learning. That there would be something that they would gain, that there's something to be gained from anything. Even from some seemingly mundane task, if you really think this is something that you can do in your sleep, well, show me if you can do it 10 times better than you did it last time. Mm-hmm. What more can you do? How more can you add? Which brings me to my third point. People in growth mindset are always raising the bar. They're always, always finding a way to raise the bar. And the reason, again, they are doing it is not to impress you, but that's how they create, that's how they take some risks, that's how they challenge themselves to say, can I, how can I do this better, better, better? Take some risks, try some new things out, learn from it. Maybe I'll screw up, that's okay. I'll, I'll deal with that challenge, but I'm not going to allow myself to say, oh, this is boring, I've done this before. So I do think that having the earning the right mindset, having the never say no mindset, having the constantly raise the bar mindset is to me at the heart of this. And of course you should ask, if you are doing all of these things, you ask and I will deliver. You say, Pramath, I want to do something new. I'll say, okay, tell me what you want to do. Let me figure something out because I know that you are doing all these things, right? Then that goes back to the point about mentors find you because I'm, in fact, you sometimes you don't even have to ask. And that's why I, I didn't tell the story of my... Whole move to India. It happened because, in a conversation in a ride to a client, my boss's boss's boss and I happened to be in the car together and he was grilling me about what I wanted to do with my life. And I said, you know what, I'd really love to spend some time in India working there sometime. And boom, when the first opportunity came, I was on a plane to India and I didn't know why till I found out that in a staffing meeting he mentioned it to the staffing person that if there's an opportunity to go to India, we should send Like He found me. But he found me because he knew that I would never ask that I would... I had let it be known, but I was not demanding, I was saying, listen, whenever you think I'm ready, whenever you are ready, I'm ready to do it, I'd love to do it. Often people don't do that. They think they are ready. And they don't care whether I am ready or not. They are only caring about themselves. They are only caring about claiming that, they are there, that they've done something but with no consideration for whether they deserve it or whether the organization can support it.
0: I don't know if you remember but uh, once you gave me a very important uh, uh, just life lesson on negotiation about a conversation one of your co-founders had with you about her salary negotiation. I learned a lot about negotiation through that. And that particular person had earned her right. Uh, at least that's the point that, you, that I got from that story. And now that you say it, it makes perfect sense. And when you have that particular growth mindset, you're able to have the right conversations, go in with the right confidence and actually accelerate your career. And you make that point really effectively
1: in the last segment of your book. Yes, yes. I wanted to leave everybody with that. Yeah.
0: Ramat, is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't, or any parting thoughts that you have for uh, our listeners?
1: I think you've been very thorough, so I can't think of any gaps. I think the one thing that I want Listeners and people who read the book to know is that, and I don't quite make this point, but in some ways, is the reason I wrote the book is that I think I think, and it sounds pretentious to say this, but that's why I wrote the book. I think this approach is liberating. Mm-hmm. And so a lot there may be a lot to absorb, but this is the these are stories of everyday ordinary people. Uh, yes, they may have had extraordinary careers, but they are these are people I know uh, and, and, and and including myself. I mean, I I don't I think these are these are all possible to implement for anyone in in their lives. And the reason it's worth absorbing even some or practicing some of this is because it's hugely liberating. Otherwise we are under so much pressure and tension and anxiety about what will happen What if this doesn't happen? That is almost paralyzing. I think it, I didn't talk about this framework we use in Harappa a lot of times, which is performance is equal to potential minus interferences, uh, which is this sports analogy, came from a sports analogy, and the interference is so high, so high. Today, right from a very young age in school and through college, it's having the benefit of watching it a little bit from afar now. And I've gone through that myself. So it's not like I'm saying that I didn't, that, that, you know, I had the wisdom to not have gone through that. Having gone through that myself and seeing how the liberating yourself from that unleashes truly your potential and makes people do seemingly impossible things that are obviously possible for them to do is what I think this book is really about. And I I hope that people are able to see that. I, I hope that people are able to even, even if they practice a little bit of what I preach, I think the impact will be disproportionate, which will convince them that it actually does work, despite all the misgivings and all the pressures and 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 and, and societal family peer uh, considerations that come to play. So I'm not trying to shamelessly promote my book. I, I'm I'm only making a Point that even if you don't read the whole book, and 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 I think even if you just read one chapter, or even if you listen to this podcast and not read the book, you can take even one or two ideas from here and try to implement them. I think it'll be hugely liberating. Hugely liberating. Cheers to liberal arts and liberation! Clearly, it was the liberating arts, right?
0: liberating us absolutely i promise um you've had a monumental impact on my life and my career um and you've had the same at scale for thousands of people i mean i can trace such uh interesting stories now that i hear uh from people who work at network capital and otherwise um i don't know how you do this but this book is a perfect summary of all the mental models so i really encourage our listeners to read the book check out some of the frameworks at Harappa, which uh, Pramath co-founded uh, with uh, Shresi. And uh, for the impact of Ashoka, if you think that uh, the book is a compendium of interesting case studies, it all became, uh, started at Ashoka. And uh, I'm a small example as well, huge beneficiary of the education. And I hope more Indians uh, give liberal arts a shot. It's really worth it.
1: Thank, Thank you, you Pramath. K- no thank you you're being too kind i think uh, a lot of what you've achieved is uh, something that you would have done and you is is a lot of your own set of drive tenacity hard work talents yes i think i've played some role in encouraging you to do that but I'm really proud to see what you are doing and how far you've come. And I really appreciate you hosting me for this. Thank you so much.